I'm Toby Haydock, burnt by the white heat of technology. Uh, whatever I advertised last time as being the next one is a lie because I'm jumping this one forward because, as you will see at the end, it gives some clues to some stuff coming up, which, considering the current release rate, means that by the time this would be out, it wouldn't be coming up, it would be backwards, so it would be like giving you a trailer to something that's already happened, which would be a bit silly. So we're leaping in. Um, <clears throat> so uh, over to me from the past. Um to explain the situation, all wibbly wobbly, etc. Right, I'm recording this in a windowless Manchester hotel room, having just done what I think is a really good interview. I was really pleased with how it went, and the Skype signal was as clear as you like all the way to Prague, much better than some of the other signals I've had. And um, I started recording straight away on the Skype recorder just to get it all... And normally before I start the interview, I press stop, then start it again just to make sure it's working. And I didn't this time. And guess what? It didn't work. Now, I've backed it up on my iPhone, but that means that the, the sound is not as good as it, as it might have been. Um, so that's a real shame because it's a really good interview. And I've just gone out to get some breakfast as well. And on my way, a pigeon just pooed on me. And, and it didn't just sort of a little splotch on my shoulder. It sort of just hit the front of the shoulder. So it cascaded all down my shoulder and all down my arm. Um, so I'm feeling very sorry for myself. So sorry if it doesn't sound as good as I would like it to. I do endeavour to make these things as te techni technically uh, um, adept as possible, but I just don't think it's working out for me today. But the, the quality of the interview itself, thanks to the gentleman involved, is great. One for fans of the new series, um, particularly the latest episodes, actually. And for a first, we've got a preview to two as-yet-unbroadcast episodes, because I'm sure that by November... Um, I will be being encouraged in my quest to include the episodes from this year, which hadn't originally been part of my remit. But um, then again, nor getting four people together from the Keys of Marinus, and I did that. So anyway, enjoy this interview, even though it sounds like we've recorded it in the under the sea. Sorry. Oh, what's the clue? He's a director from the new series of Doctor Who. Um, yeah, that's a, that's my that's as cryptic as I get this morning. Enjoy. Okay, so, well, I'm in a hotel room in Manchester. My victim is in a hotel room in Prague. But modern technology has brought us together. And it's, I'm very excited because it's the first director of the new series of Doctor Who. And by that I mean since Doctor Who came back in 2005 that, uh, that I have spoken to. So I'm going to ask him to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, hello, my name is Saul Metstein. I'm a director on the series 7 of Doctor Who. And I directed... Uh, five episodes of Series 7. And I'm going to try and not cover the ground that you covered in the, a great interview you gave for Doctor Who magazine. Um, and you left something hanging where you said when you were first asked to do Doctor Who, you turned them down. And yes. I have to ask, um, why? Well, I, I tell you why. I wasn't at the time. I wasn't really in the mood. I can't quite explain in any in any advanced detail about that. But um, to me, I had not really seen modern Doctor Who. And so my my brain 
was Doctor Who was was creaky sets and things like that. Now I quite like watching stuff with creaky sets and things like that, but it's it's different to what you what you want to make to what you want to watch. And to me, Doctor Who was a sort of studio program made quite rough and ready by the BBC. And I I like making things very fancy and polished and posh and that sort of thing. So I don't think I really knew what Doctor Who was like. And then in, in the intervening period, they asked me again. And in the intervening period, I had actually had a chance to see that Doctor Who was actually quite smartly made nowadays. Well, that's the interesting contrast, because obviously through doing this, I've spoken to Doctor Who directors from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And you're the first one I've spoken to who is a, a modern television director. And they, of course, all tell the same story of being serving an apprenticeship at the BBC and learning how to do multi-camera in the studio. Yeah. And it's fair to say that you're an altogether different beast. Yeah, well, certainly I, I came up through films and I only sort of, I only reversed into television relatively late in the day. And also uh, multi-camera is completely different. Um, I, I've, I've been in a studio once where they filmed multi-camera and I felt ill with the, the tension and nerves going through the room. So I don't know anything about it. Um, Doctor Who is a funny one in the old days, of course, because it's a funny mix of studio shoot and location shoot. But now it's all filmed in the same way that a, that a feature film is made, or at least high-end television is made, um, which, is, which is much more... Uh, it's, I mean, it's just much more like filmmaking. It's quite, it's quite different. And, and, of course, there's no apprentice, apprenticeship system anymore, so people have to sort of arrive fully formed into TV directing, which is a sort of complicated process. And they all, of course, mourn the loss of that. They say, oh, well, you know, there's, there's, there's nowhere for it. You know, the infrastructure of the BBC, as was, doesn't exist anymore. But you are a product of, you did architecture, didn't you? And then you learnt, did you learn on the job, essentially, from doing running on films and things like that? Yes, I, I was briefly in film school, but, but essentially I, I learned on the job. I mean, I, I got told very early on that if you wanted to make films, go and work on a film set to see how it's made, and then just go and watch a lot of films, you know, and just work out what it what it is as an audience films are meant to be like so uh you know i i have a fairly good theoretical and essentially you learn this by by doing tricks and things you've seen other people do before and things you just liked and when you've watched them on television or, or in cinema but that's the practical thing of how you learn to direct but how do you therefore get get yourself on the map to start getting work uh, and the chance to do it uh i think you you I think if you want to direct films, you go and make short films, you know, with yourself and friends. Uh, you try, I made some documentary stuff, I made a few, few adverts, that sort of thing. Uh, the interesting, the curious thing is it's actually very, very difficult to break into television drama. And a, a lot of directors, certain Doctor Who directors, have fought their way up from from really quite bad television drama to relatively good television drama to the very high-end television drama and things like Doctor Who. Um, I, I went a different way. I, ne I never got to do cheap television at any point. Um, not, because I, not because I didn't want to, but it, never, it just never happened. I never, I never found an in there. But television is very, very... Uh, they're very conservative about directors. They don't like to take a risk. Uh, and I think... I, I mean, I was, I was certainly directing for a decade before I directed any television. Goodness me. And when it's, a, it's a strange one. It's a strange one. And when, when you finally did um, decide you did want to do yes. Doctor Who, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm curious as to the process, because again, back in the day, you were a BBC staff director, you were assigned it. Yeah. Um, 
but what what's the process of do you sit with them and say, well, I've seen some episodes and I think you need more. You know, do you pitch, do you pitch for it in a way and say how you would do it? No, no, not really, because because you're not there to reinvent Doctor Who. You're just there to make the best version of Doctor Who possible. I mean, I think what you do is you look at the episodes. You think I like this one. I like that one. I like this one. And then you say, well, I'm, I'm going to try and do it like that because I think these are the ones that work. The other thing is you, you respond very specifically to the scripts you're, you're given. So there's quite, what's interesting with something like Doctor Who is it can be made quite differently. Different versions of it are, are quite different, even within the same series. Um, and it's all script dependent. Because the, the truth is, as all directors actually know, there's only two things that really matter. One is that the script is good, and the other is that your lead actor is good. And with Doctor Who, you have this amazing lead actor in Matt Smith. And so you then just wait. You only have to worry about the scripts being good. It's quite it's quite simple, really. But you don't really have to pitch per se, other than you say, "I understand what this is about. I understand how to make a good version of this." Uh, I don't think there's any anything more complicated than that. When I first spoke to them about doing Doctor Who, uh, I they hadn't actually sent me any scripts, so I, I wasn't actually pitching for specific episodes. Um, I did have a quite a long conversation on the phone with Stephen Moffat, who explained very succinctly and very cleverly what Doctor Who was about and I think that that you know that was a very good um, it was very good to hear somebody who actually knew very much what the program was about and that makes your job much easier and what were the biggest surprises then when you when you first did hit the show and you thought oh hang on I thought it, I thought it would be more like this or less like that I mean it's it's shot very very quickly you know so you're really running at it the whole time so you're so from the minute you arrive on set you're behind I mean, it's quite it's quite shocking. Um, I think I never quite realised how good an actor Matt Smith is beforehand. I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I'd seen his stuff and I saw he could do it, but I didn't realise how much of Doctor Who, or at least Doctor Who series uh, six and seven, depend on the way Matt Smith moves and acts and works and that sort of thing. Because actually, once you realise how he does his thing, again, it makes it much easier. Because you might not have an idea how to do something, and then somehow when Matt Smith, who has a very good understanding of that character, and, and he's physically very capable, comes on set, you very quickly know how to do a scene. And, I, and that, that amazed me, and, it, and it, it really impressed me as well. Well, speed is, is, is a curious, because, again, Doctor Who, when it was made multi-camera back in the old days, they had a week to rehearse the episodes. And, of course, yeah. actors have to come pretty much knowing what they're going to do, don't they? Yeah, in some ways the actors have to know what they're, what they're doing. It's not, I mean, it's not that terribly quick. You still have a little bit, a tiny little bit of on-set rehearsal. Um, but as I said, because Matt has such a good idea of what he is and how Doctor Who works, the other actors fall into line rather quickly. And that, so that's a, a, a major benefit. Um, the other thing is, you, so you do quite a lot of multi-camera shooting. Quite often you have a second camera. You certainly have a second camera available to you the whole time. So you you can actually polish off a lot of shooting rather quickly, but it but it's it's just physically tough. I mean, the crew work really really hard for you know under a lot of stress every day, and certainly you know you start at eight, you finish at seven, and I would say half of Doctor Who gets made in the last hour and a half of each day when you're running around like crazy people just trying to get it done. And um, you were I mean I think that that last uh, season of five episodes, the pitch that Stephen Moffat gave us the viewers was um it's a brand new film poster every week and your first episode dinosaurs on a spaceship it pretty much encapsulates Mm. that 
So yeah. was there a conscious decision that you were trying to sort of make a movie on a television budget and schedule? Um, I, I, think, I think what he was getting at is that each of these episodes is extremely different. And in, in fact, what's so clever about the Doctor Who format is that the same character and the same background can go into lots of different stories. And that's what's that's actually what's very clever about it. So you can't he can just appear in different tones and different kinds of film every, every episode. I mean, I think what particularly in the beginning of season seven, uh, I haven't seen all of the second half of season seven, but it was just trying to throw ev- you know throw everything at it and just have the most fun you could possibly squeeze out of a BBC. Um, budget for 45 minutes. I mean, certainly the dinosaur one is about the most packed episode I've ever seen of anything. <laughs> I mean, it, it starts, it's, I can't remember exactly, it starts in ancient Egypt, goes to the Indian Space Agency in the future, uh, then goes to the African plains at the turn of the, turn of the 20th century, then it goes to uh, contemporary Britain in, the, in Amy Pond's house, then it goes onto a spaceship sometime in the future or in the past actually I can't remember now and then it's the opening credits you know I mean it's, it's that insane and I think I think that was one of the fun things of that episode you just would just let's do the craziest fastest um, most action-packed episode that they've ever done and I think that was the idea from the from the outset and it is it's a, it's a, it's a good laugh and it's um it, it seems to me it mixes it, 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 there's one there's one shot i think that encapsulates everything about it it's a beautiful shot of um mark williams sitting on the tardis ledge eating his yeah. sandwiches and looking into space and that seems to me to encapsulate your job that must have been a very technical shot to achieve yeah. but beyond the technology there's the human emotion uh, and the character shining through yes and and actually i had a very interesting chat with uh, nick Hurren, one of the other directors the other day and and I think he had a, he he had the absolutely correct observation, which is that you think it's a program that's all just about fun and sci-fi and nonsense and things, but it's sort of got to make you emotional. It's got to make you cry. And and he he I think was just very right about that. So actually, what really works in this program is these little quiet moments, even though you think it's just a big wild crazy nonsense program. It's always these little it's it's that little turn. And, it, and that sort of shot is very important. And again, it's a very, very technical shot, but actually it's, it's all in service of, of that character. And it, it strikes me also that as, as those tearful moments almost become, as well, because of the sheer um, ordinariness of the person doing it, and that the Doctor's spaceship is not like the Star Trek spaceships where it's the sleekest ship in the system. <clears throat> it's actually a battered old police box that you have to hit with a hammer to make it work properly. Absolutely, and that's what that's what makes it British. Actually, I think that's one of the one of the central gags of Doctor Who is he's a sort of eccentric. I know he's a Gallifreyan, but he's a sort of English Gallifreyan or Scottish Gallifreyan occasionally. And um, and that, but I think it, it's that sort of slightly everything slightly Heath Robinson and that sort of thing. I think that's very much in the character of Doctor Who, and, and it kind of has been from from you know since Doctor Who started. And you, uh, you're, you, you. I think one of the most striking aspects um, on human terms of dinosaurs on a spaceship is that you had a proper villain in David yeah. Bradley. Yeah, he's a he's a genuinely bad guy, um, and it's quite interesting because usually when you when you d- devise a villain, you you always talk about how do we make people how do we make him not really a villain, but actually he's just a properly bad human being. And I think our, our idea how to how to style him as well is that we we based him 
uh, on Peter Stringfellow stylistically, <laughs> and, and a lot of it, he's meant to be the um, the Thatcherite nineteen eighties, and we just thought that 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 we tie we could tie that all in together by making him look a bit like Peter Stringfellow. Has the advantage that David Bradley looks sort of like Peter Stringfellow anyway, but he's it's full of things like um, his spaceship is actually modelled on. Um, Remember the car kit in Knight Rider? Yes. Again, something that was that was big in the eighties. So the whole and he's got a sort of leather thing going on as well. But he was, I think, I think when um, when that was written, uh, when Chris Chibnall wrote it, uh, it was very much uh, at the moment that um, the world hated bankers. Not that the world hate bankers any less now, but it was it was in the middle of that sort of furor. And I think we tried to get a bit of what what would happen to a man if he was just into money, and that was it. And so that's what that's what uh, Solomon is. Well, and the beautiful thing is, it all becomes relevant because I have to say, the past three weeks, I felt more like politically more like I was in the nineteen eighties than I have in about fifteen. I, I know it's it, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's really something. Because um, uh, you you know how useful a five p reduction in the top rate of income tax is to the rest of the world? Really not. Yeah. Just absolute nonsense, <laughs> and everyone knows it. You know. Absolutely terrifying. Um, but um, in terms of morality, though, is interesting is that both of your first episodes um, had things that I noticed certain corners of the Internet, as they are prone to do, um, ignited a little bit because yeah. the doctor um, allows Solomon to be killed. Well, which he, is, the doctor more or less kills Solomon. And, and, we, and then in uh, Town Called Mercy, he wields a gun, which again yeah. is, is, is to an end, to a purpose, but there are certain certain elements of fandom who would say that that was not the Doctor as they knew him. Was this stuff you had yeah. to agonise and, and discuss? Yes, yeah, I mean, I mean, they're, they're, two, they're actually two quite separate things, but we did have long discussions about it. The the Apparently, I, I don't know the episode, but apparently Tom Baker has broken uh, somebody's neck in an episode. The Doctor has killed people before. Um, so, firstly, there was that in in, in regards to dinosaurs in the spaceship. Secondly, there was a sort of theme running through, or a sort of subplot running through um, the first half of Series 7 of the fact that the Doctor had been spending more time alone and, and was beginning to get a little bit unhinged. And it's sort of, it's, it's talked about explicitly in the, in, the, um, in, the in the Western episode. But I think, I think there was a sort of look, a, an idea what would happen if the Doctor made judgments that weren't necessarily correct. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about his character is he's unbelievably intelligent, but he's also a little bit of a 14-year-old boy as well. So he, he, he does have moral lapses and things like that. The other thing we talked about with, with the dinosaurs and the spaceship thing was, um, remember, uh, um, Solomon has actually committed genocide. I mean, Solomon is as bad a guy as you can, as you can get. Um, the, the doctors try to save everyone, and... It's actually easier to just, to, you know, he makes a sort of moral choice there and decides that it's not, you know, it's easier to let the rockets go after Solomon and he sort of deserves it. But I think, I think we did discuss these things at length and certainly Stephen Moffat and Chris Chibnall and people knew that it would, it would cause some outrage in that episode. I mean, I think it, it, was, it was a considered choice. Um, and they understood that there was implications to that choice. The Western one, I think, is in some ways simpler. The Doctor, again, it, it's it's explicitly talked about that he that he's starting to lose the plot because he sort of visits uh, Rory and Amy less, and he's sort of he's he's, uh, he's having a little bit of a midlife crisis, whatever age he is. But the thing is, what he does with the gun 
is he very much does not want to carry the gun in, in the West. And he, I mean, he does carry it, but it's absolutely not what he wants to do. And, and, and again, it's explicitly said, you know, Amy says, says it, this is not how we roll and you know it. Um, so I think there was, I think if anything, the, the gun episode sort of reinforces what the Doctor's morality is, is actually like in, and fairly consistently through the series because he doesn't really want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and he tries to avoid it at all costs and he's sort of, he's forced into becoming the sheriff. And then, of course, when he actually comes to doing the actual shootout, he's not, he's not for a second going to shoot the guy. I mean, I, th- I, think, I think if you, if you live that long and you go through that many life-threatening adventures, at some point you're going you're gonna to either be involved in some physical violence or, or certainly make a choice which ends up in somebody's death. I mean, you could, you could look at it the other way. The real story of Doctor Who is a guy who has companions who live perfectly normal lives until he comes in and makes and puts them under extreme danger every episode. <laughs> That's the real truth. He's actually he's actually an incredibly dangerous person to be around. <laughs> yes. Come on this holiday with me. <laughs> yeah, you almost certainly die. If you know the universe might end or you might die. You know, or both. Well, talking of those um, two uh, interesting issues, when the script, when you get the script that you've been hired to do and it lands on your desk or whatever and you read it, if there are elements of it that you are uneasy with, if, if it's not necessarily in terms of morality but just stylistically or in terms of whether you think you can pull it off or whether it makes sense, how much say do you have uh, um, in terms of making changes to a script? To be honest, it varies enormously. Um... Sometimes quite a lot, sometimes really little. Sometimes we have big fights about it. Um, sometimes, I, I mean, interesting one with the dinosaur one. I never, for a moment, thought we'd we'd manage to on the on a Doctor Who budget make the scene where they ride along on the Triceratops, getting laser beams fired at them through, by robots. I thought we'd never manage that, and and I'm glad to say I was wrong. So again, I would have fights. I, I don't think I can do that. Um, so that's a sort of that's one of these sort of practical ones. Mostly, the scripts have been quite developed by the time you get them. So a lot of these arguments have gone through in terms of morality or tonal or, or logic. Um, quite often, in my experience, I'll have fed back into mechanics of scripts more than meaning of, meanings of scripts. So I, it's what I, I like to call plumbing. I, I tend not to change what the script is about thematically or conceptually or philosophically, but quite a lot of times you say, well, look, I don't know why that character's doing that at that point, or the, the story doesn't have an engine at this point. You know, there's, that, there's all that sort of thing, um, which, we, which you feed back into quite a lot. It also varies which writer wrote it. You know, some are more responsive and some are less responsive. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, so when you're, you've, you've gone from a sort of sci-fi spaceship, as you say, all that quick changes to uh, a western which is I always say that Doctor Who doesn't necessarily um, travel through time, he travels through genre, because mm. in a sense you've gone from one film genre to another so how does that affect the way that you do things like shoot it and cut it and light it, I mean do you have to adapt different styles well I think, I think yes and no but I think in the as all, as all answers are um, I think with the cowboy one the cow, firstly if you've seen it, you know how to shoot a cowboy film. I mean, it's, you've seen enough cowboy films. Uh, also, there's certain things in once you're in a location like that which invite to be shot in a way that cowboy films shot them. So it's not like you necessarily have to pay homage to, 
cowboy films, but you just end up shooting the same way. The biggest conceptual problem with that one was the fact that the rhythms and timings and structure of a Doctor Who and a structure of a, of a Western are extremely different. And things like a Western tends to be a lot slower, for example, than, than a modern episode of Doctor Who. And so, so there, there's a sort of mechanical issue there, which, which, is, which is quite difficult to resolve. You're trying to merge a Doctor Who episode with a Western, and you don't want either of the elements to ruin the other element. And, and, and that's quite a tricky thing. Um, because, again, audiences know what Doctor Who's meant to look like, and they know what a Western looks like. And so you can't, you can't really reinvent them. You have to sort of merge them in a funny way. So, so that's a, a, sp a specific problem. In terms of going from one to the other, like from Dinosaur to, to A Town Called Mercy, it's actually not difficult because what happens is you've been filming for 12 days on one and then you do 12 days on the other, whatever it is, and you're just quite keen to do something else. Mm -hmm. You just sort of get bored with what you're doing and you want to do something else. So, for example, you sort of get fed up of, here's another green screenshot where a dinosaur will go, great, we can go and do a landscape in Spain. You know, yeah. you, you jump like from one to the other. So, actually, it's quite refreshing. You know, it sort of, it sort of energises you again doing different things but but talking of different styles is there a, a a house style of doctor who in the sense that if you as a director say well i want to do i, I don't know a crash zoom and, and they go well actually we we don't do those on doctor who one of the one of the fun things probably the funniest thing about doctor who is that nothing is too much or wrong in terms of how you do it stylistically uh, it can sort of take anything I, I, in my analysis of it I think there's a couple of different ways of doing it. There are a couple of tendencies that different directors have, um, that, you know, who do quite different stuff. Um, but I would say, for example, um, the Asylum of the Daleks, which Nick Curran directed, is, is all basically all handheld. Um, Dinosaurs on a spaceship is almost is almost no hand handheld camera at all. It's almost all quite controlled stuff involving tracks and dollies and cranes, a lot of cranes, for example. Um, you know, but yet, they're both, I think, valid responses to what the material was. Um, I tend to, for example, do a lot of, a lot of um, quite complicated coverage, just because I, I like things like, for example, there's a classic Doctor Who shot, which you end up doing again and again, <coughs> which is Matt Smith turns his head and the camera dollies towards them. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's a sort of it's a nice Doctor Who punctuation mark. I, I do a lot of that sort of stuff. Some of the some other directors don't do it so much. Um, so there's there's certain traits you get used to, but I think a lot of that is to do with how Matt Smith acts. To be honest, so for example, there's a lot of stuff involving Matt Smith head turns, yeah, and a lot of stuff involving knowing what the last shot in the scene is. So quite you know, for me, quite often it's it's a shot of the Doctor, and and it's usually the Doctor thinking. And there's a very good way of showing Matt Smith thinking, which is his head turns and the camera dollies towards him. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, and so you end up using these sort of little tricks again and again. Um, I use a lot of cranes um, for all sorts of reasons, one of which is if you're trying to shoot something in, a, in an environment where you don't have it, you can't shoot 360 degrees because if you look behind you, it's Cardiff, and it shouldn't be. Um, cranes are quite good ways of excluding... Uh, background, so you start doing top shots because you actually don't have the background and things like that, and it's stylistically quite fun to do. I, I have also a basic rule of 
of Doctor Who for me personally, but it's, it's I, I try and shoot it all as if it's singing in the rain. I think I think it's it's a musical. It just doesn't have any music. Music. That's um, a fabulous it, quote. I'm going to use that quote in yeah, <laughs> when it, I when I when I pl- uh, plug this podcast. That's a great one. <laughs> no, but it, but it, but seriously, everything is that sequence because Matt Smith is a bit is a bit of a Gene Kelly. Mm. He's got a similar. He's got his moves he does which are great which are naturally cinematic or televisual or whatever you want to call it and the, the whole thing dances a, a, along it's got a lot of it's, it has got a lot of music in it, in it as well and it's all about a sort of certain fluidity and i think it ha- and i think also they it's overstuffed that's one of the fun jokes about it particularly the dinosaur episode which is which is you know almost psychotic in how, in how overstuffed it is but that's one of the jokes of doctor who it's it's way too much information to take in and so with that, you, I think, encourages a sort of fluid camera work and things like that to keep it bouncing along and not allow it to sort of go flat. Um, so, I, yeah, singing in the rain for me. Well, it's interesting that you mention music because that's another area of the show, I think, that divides people mm. in that some, some people who are, you know, used to the old way of making television or, or whatever say that, 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 that there's too much music or that it's, it's too loud. And how, how do you balance that? Um, I, th- I, th- I think it's an ongoing argument. I must, I must say. I think. Um, I mean, I, to me, I find it quite music. I do find it inherently musical. I mean, you know, at certain points you cut the Doctor without music, and it isn't that. I think it actually, it's very, you know, it's colourful, it's fast, there's a lot of movement, and to me, that signals you also want music. I mean, you know, I actually, as I said, I actually like that sort of old television when you watch it. Um, I don't think you can make that now, though. I don't think either, I don't think modern sensibility. People might who are very into Doctor Who might hark back to that stuff, but that's not what a, what most audience how most audiences' brains work now. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just people get used to whatever the rhythms are of the day and sure. and, and the volumes. And you know, a lot of people now are uh, you know kids now watch TV while on the internet while on their phones. You know, it, it's a People take incredible amount of information in very quickly and very noisily, you know. And I think, I think, cinema and television adapts to that because you, you, you know, there's lots of films I like, particularly sort of art house films of the '60s, which if you sh- if you show them to a modern audience as a modern film, they're about a quarter the speed that a modern audience can can take, mm. you know, or, or they're much more. Um, pared down in a modern audience takes. I mean, they can understand them as watching them as old things, but I don't think you could produce that now. And I think, I like, you know, I, I did um, I did an episode of the modern series of Upstairs, Downstairs, and I looked at some old episodes, and they're kind of amazing. But, my God, you couldn't make that now. Not a chance. And, and I think Doctor Who's the same. Um, and before we move on to the, the snowman, just one thing about the um, a town called Mercy that I think the the Doctor Who's first western didn't have, where it had a lot of fine British actors wrangling American accents yeah. to uh, variable effect. Yeah. Um, you very wisely, and I'm not. A, I don't say this as a parochial sci-fi fan because I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Farscape. But I think yeah. in getting Ben Browder in to play the pivotal part of the sheriff, a genuine American actor, yeah. although trained in the UK, interestingly yeah. enough, um, really helped to sell the whole Western vibe. Can I, can I tell you a great thing? I had, I had a, a great bad review of uh, Town Called Mercy that I read, which complained that none of the accents were authentic, <laughs> and all the actors are American. Yes, indeed. So I, so I don't quite know which authenticity we're going for. Maybe they should have all had Spanish accents because we shot it in Spain. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think... It's, 
it's always a tricky one being authentic. And I think one of the interesting things with Doctor Who is you have to make it real, even though it's all obviously nonsense. You know, you absolutely have to make it real. And in every, dis- and you, like, for example, even though some of the characters are very big and sort of showy, they still have to act as if they're in a real, inverted commas, drama. And likewise, when we, go, when we went to Spain, where they shot Spaghetti Westerns, we absolutely had to make it real. You know, it's not, we're not having a laugh at Westerns. We're, we're making a Western. It's just a Western. We have to believe all that stuff. And I think, um, I think Ben Browder, for example, brought a lot of, he's, he's a proper American. He's nothing like a British person. They're, they're different. He feels and he's got the texture of an American. Um, I have to confess, I'd never heard of him <laughs> before we cast him <laughs> because I don't actually watch anything um, on television. So I didn't actually know who he was, but I was very impressed with him <laughs> once he turned up. No, I didn't cast him. That's the thing. The, the producers cast cast him. They said, this guy's really good. We've seen him in this stuff. He's great. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had no part in, in, the, in his casting. Now, that's very interesting because I'm going to leap to a question that I was going to leave to the end, but it, it, it's come organically. Um, again... And the reason I hark back to talking to the Olga, because this is a project about 50 years of Doctor Who, when I talk yeah. to old directors, they say, oh, well, I cast so-and-so because I'd seen him in that, or I saw him yeah. in that play, or I'd worked with him in that. And now, for the first time since Doctor Who came back, it has a thing called a casting director, which takes um, either, whether it's the onus or the power, I don't know, off you, the director, to do your uh, own casting. How, d- d- is that is that um, something that... You're happy? Is that a development that you're happy with? Is you, you don't mind that the casting, the actors that you will be wrangling is done not necessarily 100% in your control? Uh, well, to be honest, I don't, think, I don't think casting is ever done 100% in the director's control. I mean, you're, you're, you're varying degrees of control over everything. Um, I mean, I would say I don't necessarily think in a lot of television they trust the director enough like that. But casting, we tend to come to some sort of consensus casting. So I will be in the casting session with the casting director. We will tend to put forward who we want, and then then we'll all, you know, me and the producers and the execs will all, and the writer will all argue about it. Um, usually, it's in casting. It's usually fairly. Um, it's usually a fairly pleasant argument, not to be honest. Um, what happens in a case like a guest star like Ben Browder is kind of what happens in. In Hollywood films, you know, they say that person's a name. Let's let's get him in to do it because he adds some value to it. Now, I don't think that's unusual or or wrong. It's just that's that's part of the system. Um, mostly, the casting is done by me and the casting director, and then consented to by the by the the grown ups, as we call them, the producers, <laughs> exec producers. Um, and so, I think, but I think to have a. a, a not 100% control as a director is how television works. I mean, I, I don't think... I, I suspect, to be honest, when you these directors you talk to from the past, I, I'm sure they didn't have 100% control either. They probably had more control because because in television the, the producers have become more powerful and the director less powerful in the, in, in the last few decades. So I think that probably happens. Um, but, you know, I, but, you know, in people like... David Bradley or um, Adrian Scarborough. These were all sort of decisions we all talked about, um, and and actually I feel very lucky. I mean, Adrian I'd worked with before, who's just an amazingly good actor. Mm, he's fantastic. Um, and uh, David Bradley I'd tried to work with once before, but it, the dates didn't work out. He's also a very good actor. But Ben I didn't know, but he was great. Um, 
you know, likewise, you know, if you're a director for hire on these programs, you come in and, and you know, like, I never realized again how good uh, Karen Gillan and, and Arthur Darville were until I started working with them. Um, but again, I, I would have had no, you know, they were already there. I, I'm the new boy, not them. Well, that takes us into uh, The Snowmen, where you inherited uh, three characters who started as one-off characters, but who have become now part of Doctor Who's furniture, which is this yeah. curious triumvirate of, uh, yeah. of Victorian alien adventurer types, uh, which are the Sontaran, um, Dan Stark is Sontaran, and uh, uh, the Silurian, and her, and her sapphic sidekick. Yeah. They're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun, funnily enough. But, um, actually, that wasn't the first episode we shot with them. The first episodes we shot with them actually were, the first episode we shot was this one called The Crimson Horror, which is this Mark Gatiss script. So actually, that was actually shot before the the Christmas episode, but it hasn't been broadcast yet. But um, no, they, they were, they're great characters. Um, I mean, Dan particularly is just, he's incredibly funny and he's, he's got incredibly consistent and brilliant comic timing. Which in, which impresses me no end. Um, I had a very there's a very curious thing with Dan and Neve, which is in fact I only know them basically as um, he's a Santaran and she's a lizard woman, and it wasn't until quite recently that I ever actually got to know them as human beings, which took a little while because you're like you sound like the guy I know, but you're not him because he looks like a potato and you don't. <laughs> and is is there an extra pressure that you're doing a, a, a Christmas episode? Uh, there, there probably is extra pressure. I don't really, I don't really work like that, to be honest. It doesn't, doesn't really. Um, you just got to get the stuff done and make it as good as possible. You know, what I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't really think you think about it in a in a in a way to do with pressure. It's funny. Um, I mean, I actually think, in, in a curious way, you make something for the BBC like Doctor Who, which is going to be successful because people love Doctor Who anyway. So you all, the audience is already on your side, basically. And then the BBC, it really matters to them that that's going to be good. So, in fact, in some ways, it's actually very not full of pressure because the audience, you know, the audience are already predisposed to it. The, sure. the much harder thing is making a film when a film is a film you've actually got to persuade people to go out of their houses, hire babysitters, buy cinema tickets, devote two hours to sitting in the dark watching it. That's much tougher. Um, the likes of Doctor Who, as I said, is, is a predisposition to liking the stuff. The BBC has to make it work. You, you're just there to help them. When we're talking about straddling genres, um, there's a very fairy tale like palette to the Christmas Doctor Who's. Yes, yes, and, I, and again, I think I think part part of that is this. Is Stephen Moffat does that deliberately. You know, Christmas is a different vibe, uh, and so I think there's no accident there. It's got a, it's got a sort of fairy tale magic quality to it. Uh, but I, I think it's I think it's very much Stephen's doing. He's he's he does that very deliberately um, because he's he just he's sensitive to that sort of thing. Uh, again, I think it's back to this thing: is Doctor Who actually, you know, it may be whizzy and sci-fi and all that sort of thing, but it's actually quite uh, it's quite sensitive in, in its own way. It's about relationships and things like that. And I think a lot of the stuff that works best in Doctor Who is like that. I mean, I mean, my favourite bit, I think, of the of the Christmas I got to do was um, the whole thing with her discovering his TARDIS on the cloud, mm. because it's a it's it's just a sort of magical kid fantasy thing, uh, and it's and it's sort of romantic as well. I mean, it's quite romantic. This is this is the curious thing is people think these program sci-fi programs are sort of for for boys, you know, and teenagers and all this sort of thing. But actually, they're quite 
you know, even sci-fi people love sort of romance. It's very interesting. Again, it's back to my thing about you're making a musical. Musicals tend to be romantic. But you know, it's, very it's, chaste romances, though. Well, they can be, yeah, well <laughs> the Doctor Who's on before 9pm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, look, I, I promised I wouldn't take up too much of your time, so I, I, I will I will rattle off the few last questions, if I may. Um, you've been very generous and very candid. I appreciate it. Um, I have a fear that, because my, my quest was to cover every story up to the snowmen, um, but I fear now, by the time I reach the end of my quest, eight more episodes, nine more episodes of Doctor Who will have been transmitted, two of which you've directed. So, without any spoilers, can you tell me one thing about each of your forthcoming episodes, just so I can cross them off my list? Well, I, I can tell you quite a lot about the Crim- Crimson Horror because it's been—it's quite a lot of it's already publicly known. It's a script by Mark Gatiss. It's a Victorian horror story of some kind. Uh, it's got uh, Dan, Neve, and Catherine in it again. Um, it's yeah, it's actually—it's a very, very good script. Um, It's—it's it's got a. It's structurally very interesting, very unusual for a Doctor Who episode. It stars also Diana Rigg and her daughter Rachel Sterling, st- starring as mother and daughter. And they're, f- they're friend- first time they've ever done that. And they're friends of Mark Gatiss, and I think Mark Gatiss wrote it for them. So back to the casting thing, they, you know, they were sort of part of the whole idea in the first place for that script. Um, it's, it's, a re- it's a really strange episode. I really, really like it. I just think it was such a good script. Um, that it was not, you know, it wasn't, it was a sort of technically quite awkward to make, but just a good story, just a lot of fun. And what, what's, fun. The atmosphere, what's the atmosphere of it? Is it gothic? Is it weird? Is it... It's, it's Mark Gatiss, so it's gothic. <laughs> it's weird, yes. Um, it's, it's, it's quite, I don't know, it's, it's got its own funny little character to it. It's a very, it's a very interesting, um, slightly creepy, strange, it's really different from... Um, you know, it's it's nothing like dinosaurs in the spaceship. You know, it's quite quite different. Uh, no, I, I just love it, but I, I think it's about all I can actually tell you about it. Um, but I think no, I think people will love that one. Actually, it's very strange. That was nice. The final episode, which um, Stephen Moffat wrote, uh, I can't really tell you a hell of a lot about it. I have to be honest. That's that's the one shrouded in secrecy. Well, um, I I I have to get anecdotes. So, did you have a drink on set? At any point, cup of tea, cup of coffee. Um, well, we have the strict instructions that there should be no hot liquids on set at any at any time. <laughs> um, well, I think that counts as an anecdote from the season finale <laughs> without getting anything away. Um, but no, no, that one, I, that, I just can't actually. Remember. Here's an interesting thing about that one: is I don't actually know what it's called. I noticed they announced the names of all the other ones, but ah. I don't actually remember that one, the name of that episode being announced. Uh, well, um, t- t- uh, two more things. Uh, one, any standout moments that I haven't covered? Um, I mean, I, I mean, there's lots of standout moments. I mean, in terms in terms of my experience in Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look. I mean, we we had a, a hell of a time in Spain. It was just. I mean, it's just great. You're just shooting a western. You know, the, on, the only really difficult bit is the is the crew all get sunburned because they're used to being in South Wales shooting. Um, that's that was fun. Um, some of the, um, I mean, the single worst day of filming I think anybody ever has had was the day we shot on the beach for the uh, pterodactyl chase, which was oh, yes. apocalyptic weather. Um, it was it literally been okay weather up up till that 
that day in apocalyptic weather, then the next day was perfectly nice. And that was, and that was a just unbelievably unpleasant. Um, and you know, Christmas one, you just have fun. You're, you're, you're shooting in the middle of summer, snowing everywhere up. You go to Bristol, you close the square down, you try to make it look like Victorian London. And it's just, you know, it's a big, complicated thing, and it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to do. Um, I think I think with Christmas one particularly, I, you know, it's, that, it's the joy of when the special effects all come together. You know, because, for example, the Clara going up the spiral staircase to the cloud, it's just one turn of a spiral staircase in a studio in a, in a shed in Wales on a green screen. And I think to see that sort of go through and become a sort of magical thing is really... It's, uh, you need a big leap of faith <laughs> when you're shooting that stuff. Sure. Because it's just, it's just technical and fiddly. Um, and you're in Prague at the moment, so what are, you, what, are you, what are you working on there? I'm shooting a couple of episodes of the, the BBC are doing a new version of The Musketeers. Ah. And Prague is where you go to for 17th century France. Um, but the interesting thing is the, the opening block of it is being directed by, I'm, I'm doing the second block, the opening block is directed by Toby Haynes who did a lot of Doctor Who's Indeed. as well. And uh, it's being shot, his block, not my block, is being shot by Stefan Pearson, who's shot a hell of a lot of modern Doctor Who. I think he's shot like 12 episodes or something. Um, and so it's got a lot of, there's a lot of Doctor Who connections going on, but it's quite different. It's quite different, you know. Um, but it, there is a sort of Doctor Who, Doctor Who-ish thing going on here. Well, and the, the two final questions are, yeah. I always ask. One is to <clears throat> nominate a charity that you would like the listeners to donate to. Yes, you can donate money to the uh, World Wildlife Fund, www.wwf-uk.org. Um, uh, and the second is, it's doc- thank you so much. for I know because you're in the midst of working and you've given me nearly an hour of your time. I'm very grateful. Um, so what is your message to... Uh, the Doctor Who fans listening out there on this, the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, uh, on a year that you've been involved with it as well. Oh, I, th- I just think, um, I-, I hope they have a-, a very good anniversary and I think there's some- there are some great episodes that I've seen coming up. So I think I think it'll be fun and I just, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, just, <laughs> it's, a-, it's a great programme and it's such a clever idea and I-, and I think they could easily run it for another 50 years if they, if they keep thinking up good ideas, which they seem to be able to. Well, if it does run for 50 years, some other idiot will have to do uh, what I'm doing now because I'll be dead. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, Saul. I do appreciate it. Brilliant. Well, I really appreciate that. And um, have, have fun out there with the Three Musketeers. Great. And good, luck with the, good luck with the rest of it. Thanks. Well, I couldn't do it without the help of people like you, so thanks very much. Okay. Cheers. See you later, Take Bye. care. Bye. Bye. Well, thanks to Saul. Great interview. Um, probably sounded better when I <laughs> was listening to it, but um, in terms of sound quality, but um, content, um, uh, very interesting stuff. Um, in addition to this, I'm recording these things on an iPhone now, and my iTunes has decided not to recognise any of my voice memos and has wiped all of my music and everything. So uh, I can't even sync this up to my computer. I have to actually email each voice memo. Technology is really failing me. 
at the moment. So, assuming there is another Toby Haddock shoes around, in that you know, I don't know, my artificial joints don't seize up, or my positronic brain doesn't melt, or the train I'm on doesn't turn out to be made out of wattle and daub and gets rained on, and I get squashed by soggy peat. Um, um, who's in the next shoes round? I don't know. Um, because I'm done it yet, but I'm hoping to go and interview somebody who worked behind the scenes. Um, on everything from Pertweed through to Davison um, and uh, she'd mentioned where she lived and um, I could have actually done it last week when I interviewed Bernard Holly because she lives about three doors down and we didn't work it out so can I win the lottery or something please? Thanks in the meantime have an awful lot of fun this is Toby Haydokes who's round follow me on Twitter it's probably full of really really joyous celebratory stuff and um, feedback to podcast at bigfinish.com unless it's horrible I can do that now I've had a critique from a pigeon bye now where do I press stop where's the stop button gone now where's the Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. Eldrad must die. Here lies Eldrad. Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. This is Icebreaker Alexander. Alexander, Alexander. I wanted a boat out to the island. (laughs) You'll be lucky. I am in a thousand worlds. Boats go down round here. I cracked in frozen waters. Gibbs, open the door! And nothing gets recovered. He's coming out. Keep back! Something glittered. There. It's a bird. A big one. The reactor housing. It's not moving. Look at its wings. Poor thing. Its feathers are full of crystals. It's covered in ice. It's not ice, sir. It's more like quartz. I am here. Look to their faces. Don't look at them. Let's just walk away. Gibbs, is that you? Crystals over their faces like masks. Eldrad masks. The contamination has spread to humans. Don't look at their eyes. Keep going. His eyes, sir. Eyes are glowing. Am Eldrad. Eldrad must die. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.